3: Camp Hell, Anna Wakey, is a production of iHeartRadio. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the author and participants and do not necessarily represent those of iHeartMedia or its employees. Due to discussion of traumatic, sexual, and violent content, listener discretion is advised. I remember when the lawsuit started. I remember
4: walking through my mother-in-law's house and stopping dead in my tracks because the news was on and I heard the word Anne Wakey. And all the hair on the back of my neck stood up and I walked over to where the TV was and I just stood there staring at the TV listening to them say that things were going down. (laughs) and that people were getting arrested and that lawsuits were happening. And I remember starting to cry. And my mother-in-law did not know at the time that I had been to Anawake. And she knew then. She knew then. I was so glad that it was finally happening. And I was so mortified at the same time. Because even though things, happened that we were bad there. We were so brainwashed. We loved Ann Wakey.
5: This is Kelly, a survivor of Anna Wakey, remembering her reaction to first hearing about the scandal. With Louis Petter now in jail, multiple civil suits had been filed against him and Anne Wakey Incorporated. Attorney Pat Edelkind worked tirelessly, along with her partner in the suit, attorney Randy Blackwood, with the number of clients and suits filed, this case would take over three years before it finally went to court. Here's Pat.
6: Once it hit the press of the Atlanta paper and somewhere around the United States, it became known and people would come. Or they would call me and they would be interested in talking. And I had, I just dedicated my life to, to talking to them. and working on this case. We basically consolidated in his office, although I had my own, and uh, we churned uh, down a ton of paper. We had so many, <laughs> so many people working for us at some, one, one time that it was just impossible to keep up with it. But we did it. I remember I used to sleep much because I talked to all the clients That was really difficult. That's the one thing that Randy did not want anything to do with. So I did all of that, all the client contacts. And you can imagine people were talking about their children and then we're talking to the adolescents. They were usually adolescents. But the older ones had more to say about everything that happened there because they were just older. They could relate about the sexual abuse. It wasn't pretty, but they could say it. The younger ones, no, <laughs> difficult at any point in time. in the day, I could be called day or night. And I would talk to them. You just had to hold their hands and listen to the parents as well as the, the kids.
7: Over the past several weeks, we have received a number of very serious allegations concerning both the facility out there and a number of individuals involved with it.
6: It was just a form of their therapy. They were told to do it, and at the time he was 14 and a half, 15 years old, they didn't know any
8: better. I asked him, "Why are you letting this happen? Why are you covering up for Louis Better?" He had no answers to that question.
6: The fault of having an institution. Paid in a hospital to be such a despicable place and to do absolutely the contrary of what they should have
7: done. I'm disturbed over the fact that something is still going on at Anawaiki.
5: I'm Josh Thane, and this is Camp Hell, Anawake. Since the initial lawsuits against Anawake were filed... There had now amassed a total of eight different lawsuits, including up to 31 defendants associated with Anawaiki and over 130 plaintiffs. The first to go to trial was one involving patients from the Anawaiki North Campus in Rockmart for girls. Terry was one of these plaintiffs.
9: Actually, what happened, the five girls, which I was one of them, Three of us were able to testify. They hadn't even gotten to the boys yet. It was really scary testifying in court, but at the same time, it was a good feeling because I had a lot of anger because I felt like I had been stripped four years of my life with my parents growing up. Um, I was robbed those years and ended up coming out with really no education and um, probably more problems. So it felt really good to be able to testify um, and share about the manual labor that they made us do day in and day out and the abuse, the physical abuse, the sexual abuse. Just to be able to get that all out and hold them accountable was really a good feeling. And it, it helped me personally to let go and move
6: on. There were originally eight or nine students, former girls, who were in that lawsuit, and some just dropped out. They couldn't take it, or they were fearful, or they were frightened into positions. But nonetheless, um we ended up with four.
5: Pat says, the proceedings that took place in this first civil trial were shocking in showing the abuse the girls had endured at the Rockmark campus. Difficult as it was, the plaintiffs testified and gave their stories.
6: In the one case that went to trial uh, that ended up with four girls, they were subject to cross-examination and all of that. The uh, sexual abuse, the denial, of privileges... They would be denied home visits if they told parents too much about what was going on, what was really going on, and then come to find out that it was all true. It was just astonishing. That was horrific, really. But we prepared them very well, and they did well.
5: On December 9th, 1989... After four years of working on the case and a 10-week trial, a Fulton County Superior Court jury awarded $5.2 million to four young women who had been victims of forced labor at Anawaiki. At the time of the settlement, this was an unheard of number for a suit dealing with child abuse and one that Anawaiki's insurance, who would end up paying out the amount, was not expecting.  —
6: They were really, basically, shocked. The insurance defense lawyers were shocked at what we got for these four girls. They never thought that for four girls, they would have to pay $5.4 million. No, no one thought that. It was just wouldn't be believed, but now it would. —
5: Carl Moore was subject to these lawsuits, along with Anna Wakey, and its board of directors. He remembers his reaction to the civil suits as they began to go to trial.
8: Oh, I just wanted to crawl under a rock. I thought a trial was coming. I told everybody in the investigation everything that I knew, and I was prepared to do that in trial. And, but then there was a civil suit also, and I was named in the civil suit. It's like a perfect storm, this whole thing. So I was being sued. I didn't know if I was what was gonna to happen to me criminally. And this went on for a long time. It was at least a couple of years, I think, before they finally got around to, to taking my deposition. It was a, a really hard thing. I mean, the plaintiffs needed me to testify. They were suing me. The insurance company was the only representation I had.
5: Because Carl had chosen to testify against wakey he would have no help from them when it came to him being sued or any other litigation he would incur. Anawakee's insurance with St. Paul would be the only legal defense team he would have, as he had been an employee of Anawakee at the time.
8: Anawakee was not going to do anything to help me. St. Paul was being sued. I mean, that's where the money was going to come from. So they had a vested interest in knowing what I knew, I guess. I don't think they wanted me to become a plaintiff, which is ultimately what I did. So that's what I mean by conflict of interest. As far as I know, the day after my deposition, they settled the case. So I spent a lot of years in agony about that. I mean, trying to get on with my life and not knowing uh, how this thing was gonna work out.
5: After Anna Wakey had lost this initial suit, at a cost of over $5 million, the desire to go to trial with each of these civil cases dwindled quickly. Yet again, a settlement and negotiation was in the works. For this to happen, however, all 131 plaintiffs would need to agree to the terms of a settlement. They
6: were really right, At the verdict that came in with the girl suit, they saw that they had best settle or toxic damages and all these kinds of things would add up to an awful lot of money. They didn't imagine that they would get a verdict like we got. Well, we wanted to settle and they wanted something out of it. That was the bottom line. And just to show them that it was fair, it was pretty much disclosed. We disclosed what they were going to get. And we had to get them to agree what patient held out, but eventually opted in the settlement and signed the release. The insurance paid it all, really, except for the time in jail and things like that.
5: By March 19, 1990, a settlement had been agreed upon by the St. Paul Insurance Company and the 131 former patients who had sued the organization a settlement of $34 million had been awarded. This amount would be the largest civil suit payout in the history of the state of Georgia at the time.
6: This was the most important case that I've been involved in because at the time, it settled for $35 million. In today's dollars, I looked it up yesterday, and and to my amazement, it would be $150 million today.
5: While the payout for this civil suit was the largest in the state's history, how the payments were split up is a little more complicated. Because Anna Wakey had agreed to a settlement, this lump sum would be divided between the victims, with a point system that would deduce how much a victim would be paid depending on what they had been through. I
6: remember Judge Esther said to us, well, you're now wealthy, both of you, because he gave us our check. The clients did not trust Randy Blackwood with the, with the, any $35 million. And they were frantic about that. He was going to put it in his trust fund. However, they thought he was going to take off to real or something. Not the most trusting people after their experiences. In any event, I relayed this to the judge and he elected to also Get Randy in on it, and it ended up being in the court's trust fund. <laughs> so, held in trust for the plaintiffs. We had to put a formula of a certain amount, I think it was 50000 to the parents who were also joined in the lawsuit. And we went to the statute of limitation to pass on, and everyone got something, but the ones who were really hurting at that point in time which that were within the statute, they got much, much more, from $200,000 to
9: $300,000. They did it on a point system, and so you would get a certain amount of points depending on how long you were there. And I think that's what I benefited from. Because I was there for four years, I got more points. And then you got a certain amount of points for what kind of sexual abuse you suffered or um, mental abuse. And then you got points for actually how many days and hours of labor. And so it all just added up. So each person had their own sets of points. And my understanding was when I testified and two other girls testified, I guess the jury awarded us each like two or three million dollars apiece, but we didn't get that. Instead, they settled for like thirty-two million. This is what we were told. They they saw that the three girls from the very beginning were awarded two to three million dollars apiece, and they were just getting started. So I think Edwicky probably got scared and said, "We better settle now because this is going to get really big." I ended up getting um, about $360,000. I had no idea. I just got married and had my first child. I think I was only like 21 or 22 at the time. And so I remember when we were going to court to testify and I was trying to explain everything to my husband, I said, I think I might get like $1,000 or something. Like, I had no clue as far as the money. I had no idea. So it was
5: a shock. Some of the victims of Anna Wakey would never hear about the civil suit and would receive no restitution for the damage they had endured. Here's Cheryl, a survivor of the sexual abuse which took place in Rockmart.
10: I was not involved in any lawsuits whatsoever. I wasn't aware of any lawsuits. No one called us or told us uh, anything about that or the possibility of getting money. I do know that one of, I don't know if she was in my group or in someone else's group, but one of the girls, her dad was a lawyer, I think, that's helped to spearhead it. I don't know if they just chose to keep it small and not involve all the girls or all the people, or they just weren't basically in the capacity to deal with all of us per se. For me, it wasn't worth it because no amount of money would have changed what happened to me. It would have been nice, you know, but I do know that some of the girls that got money, they went on to buy drugs with it and not necessarily spend it in the best of ways because it was a devastating experience for a lot of people.
4: A lot of the payouts, you know, nobody who got a payout is healthy and happy. Nobody that I know of, none of the girls who got a payout still benefit from that money. That money is long gone.
11: I think I was vaguely aware, but again, I I was... Really just saying, nope, saved my life, didn't see nothing wrong, nothing bad, nothing wrong. And the reason for that attitude was, again, I did not want my parents feeling like they put me in that position because I know it would, it would kill them with the guilt. And if I missed out on a $2 million settlement, I don't care as long as they had that for the rest of their lives, not knowing what all really went on there. I wish I'd have
12: known about it. If I'd known about it, I would have been in it. I didn't find out it until I'd say twenty years later. I was living in Miami Beach at the time, and actually a bunch of the girls came down. It was a mini reunion. Somebody said that there was a lawsuit and they got money, and I was like, "What?" And that's the first time I learned about it that there was even a lawsuit.
13: I found out about it after the fact. I was at Anawakey longer than anybody that ever went to Anna Wakey. I was there younger than anybody. Yeah, no one said anything. I didn't get anything. I, no one ever called me. I was on the West Coast. I was out of the loop.
4: I had gotten a phone call months before. They had asked if there was a lawsuit, would I be available? And at the time I had a, my son was a toddler and he had pediatric cancer. And I was too busy trying to make sure that my baby lived, and he did. He survived his cancer. But I was too busy to even think about helping this lawsuit. And I was still conflicted with my emotions about it because I was just a few years out of Anoike, and the brainwashing and the fear was still there. I still dreamed about it. I still dream about it. And in the dreams, they're always chasing me, trying to get me to come back. And when I was a young mother, I used to dream they were chasing me and my children and trying to get us to go to Anoike.
5: To try and help in the cases of victims who had not been included in the lawsuits, a $1 million trust fund was established. Pat explains.
6: After they settled, I had two of the former Anawake patients who had not been included in the money that we left. I left $500,000, and Randy Blackwood left $500,000 to form a trust for those patients who we weren't representing, so they could receive some money. At the time, it was more than it would be today. And... This kid comes up in his car, and he's in my driveway, and he says, I don't want that. because I told him, we have a trust fund for you. And he said, I want money. <laughs> he looked rather frightening, but he sure got my attention.
9: We all did agree to put a certain amount of money aside for a trust fund for those that didn't get involved in the lawsuit. Some people didn't know about it. Some people knew about it and chose not to. But there were still a lot of people out there that needed help. So there was a certain amount of money for that.
5: Kelly was one former patient who later received some help from the trust fund.
4: I don't know how much that CARE trust fund was, but it was supposed to be for us to get therapy and education. I also felt as if Anna Wakey had given me an eating disorder, and I wanted to get help for that. They paid for me to go to career assessment and a psychological assessment. And then they paid for me to have therapy. And they paid for me to go to school, so I went to school to be a surgical tech. And then they gave me a $3,000 check. And it was near the end. It was my understanding that the, the fund was coming to an end that the funds were going away and the board was dissolving. I do not believe what I got from the trust fund was retribution for what I went through at Anna Wakey, and I don't believe that even the people who got large sums of money, no matter how much money you get, it doesn't rebuild what was broken in us. It doesn't.
5: I asked Pat Edelkind if she felt justice was brought to the victims from Inouyeke.
6: It's difficult to say because it's really difficult to take back those kinds of experiences that they suffered. But in some small way, it did. It certainly did. It gave them something to start on, you know, to recuperate. So in that sense, it did. But having lived what they lived through, no one would trade money for that. Anna Wakey changed my life. I had no idea that I would be doing stuff like this. But this is where I ended up, and I have decided to go out as a solo practitioner, and I never knew I'd be doing something like this. But I feel that I have done something that matters in this world. I feel that I have helped people and that is the greatest feeling i've ever had to be able to give you know yes i became wealthy however money is not the only thing that satisfies this feeling of having done well for my fellow human beings matters
2: Visit LiveNation.com slash concertweek to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum41, 30 Seconds from Mars. Oh, and Two-Door Cinema Club.
5: While the civil suit against Dana was taking place, Lewis Petter had been serving out his sentence of eight years in a Georgia prison. Petter would go on to serve seven, just shy of his full sentence. Petter had been tried for parole in 1992 and was initially denied after a flood of calls were made to the parole board. However, on January 23, 1996, at the age of 76, Lewis Petter was granted parole with the stipulation that he remain on probation and that he not return to Douglas County or have any contact with minors. By 1999, Petter attempted to appeal the ruling that he not be allowed to return to Douglas County due to the fact that his probation officer had been moved to Douglas County. The appeal was upheld and considered moot. The governor of Georgia at the time was Roy Barnes, a former attorney. Barnes had represented Annakee during litigation over its status as a nonprofit in the 1980s. It is this same year that the long-outdated sodomy law in Georgia was overturned. Due to this overturning of the sodomy law, Louis Petter would no longer have to have his name on a sex offender's list. Petter would soon after attempt to overturn his conviction as sodomy was no longer against the law. His reason for doing so was that he could, quote, "...travel out of the country to see family and visit property he owns in Mexico." For the last years of his life, Louis Petter would live in a small ranch home in Lawrenceville, Georgia, with his wife Mabel and two German shepherds. Petter would go on to live another nearly 20 years as a free man. Former patient Kelly Lewis says that after reconnecting with other Inouyeke survivors, she went on what she called Petter's death watch.
4: When we began... The first, it was message boards back in the 80s for Anawake survivors. And we would get on these message boards and we would yell and scream at each other. But we also had very close bonds to each other. We went through trauma together. So when you, as a child, go through trauma, you bond with the people who help you through it. And I'm still very, very close with a lot of the people who went to Anawake with me. I mean, to the point of where I see them. Once a month, twice a month, they come to my house and eat food and and we go and do events together and, and that kind of thing. I'm very close to them. And I remember at one point people arguing after Mabel Petter's death. I found Mabel Petter's obituary online and I posted it. I can't remember at the time if we had a Facebook group or if it was a message board, but I think it was a Facebook group. We had graduated from, uh, you know, the dial-up squealing to real internet, and we were on Facebook, and I remember announcing and posting the obituary, and it said she was survived by her husband, Lewis Petter. So it was at that time that I went on Death Watch, and that's what I ended up calling it. I went to obituary.com, and I had them send me a notice every month to tell me if there had been any Petters who had an obituary. And for years, I didn't trust it, so I would actually drive by his house to see if he still lived there. And eventually, he didn't live at his house anymore. He, I guess, was probably, and I guess this, probably in some sort of nursing home. He was a very old man when he died. Now, the first time I saw his house, I was shocked, because it was just a brick ranch house. I expected that he lived in this big, beautiful, fancy house, but he didn't. So I remember going by his house, I would drive by his house to see if he still lived there. And I could tell that he lived there because of the dogs there, because he had German shepherds with him at all times. It was known that no matter where he went, those dogs went with him. They were trained German shepherds and they were with him all the time. So when I would drive by his house, if I saw the dogs in the yard, I knew that he was still living there. And then the dogs weren't there anymore. And I started panicking because I didn't know how to trace him anymore. And I, you know, would express this on the Facebook page or to other people who went to Anna Wakey. And I ended up going to where Mabel was buried to see the gravestone. And I saw that his marker was next to hers. And it had a birth date on it, but the death date was still open. And that cemetery actually was not too far from the house that I lived in in Atlanta for 11 years. So for 11 years, at least once a month, I would go by the cemetery to see if they added a death date onto it. Because I didn't trust that they would do an obituary, which they did not.
5: On January 18th, 2018, Petter passed away at the age of 98.
4: One day I went and the death date was there and I took pictures of it. I remember shaking and I remember having to steady my hand to take pictures of it. He hurt so many people. I was so glad he was dead. I felt like... The balance between good and evil on this planet shifted when he died. And I was, I was glad to bring that news to people who had been abused by him and affected. Their lives changed because of him. And I posted the pictures. And I wouldn't tell them at first. I, I made people work for it because I'm not going to be the one that causes somebody to go and desecrate a grave or a graveyard. I don't remember telling them what graveyard it was, but that but that it had happened, and I posted the pictures, and I knew that people could find out if they were smart enough to look the way I always looked. I was glad that he went to prison for the short period of time that he went to prison, but it infuriated me. Only the good die young, and that's why he lived forever. So that was Death Watch, and I was glad when it was over. And I remember my husband that night holding me and telling me, it's okay now, because it was okay. He's gone, And, and now our story is being told, and we won't be forgotten anymore. And I'm glad of that. We deserve for people to know. And not only do we deserve it, but future children deserve for people to know that these kinds of situations where they isolate children are dangerous. They're dangerous, and humans can't be trusted. In situations of power and money, they just can't be trusted.
5: In the end... The only time served by any of the staff from Anna was the seven years Lewis Petter spent in prison and an additional three years served by Jim Womack. Womack was eventually released due to a statute of limitations ruling against his charges. Lewis Petter and family had turned over $800,000 of property to Douglas County in the settlement, with over $5 million worth of real estate left in the control of Anawake Incorporated, its nonprofit branch of the organization. By January of 1987, the Hospital Corporation of America, or the HCA, agreed to take over day-to-day operations of Anawake's three campuses. This deal would prevent the Department of Human Resources from taking away Anawake's license to operate as a medical facility. For a few years, the campuses would go by the new Anawake, eventually changing hands again and dropping any name connecting it to the scandal. Much still remains unknown about where the payment for the Anawake takeover ended up, or who profited from such items as the sale of the Carabel campus or the marina. Since Anawake's demise, a whole industry of, quote, emotional growth schools has been established. Many of these seem to have taken pages out of Anawake's playbook, from solitary confinement to forced labor, and some of which have also seen charges of abuse, both sexual and physical. The amount of oversight given to these organizations is often lacking, varying from state to state, with no federal organization to regulate them. Journalist Albert Edgen, who covered the Anawake case for over seven years, says he is still concerned that some of the former abusers from Anawake may still be involved in child treatment.
14: The most troubling thing to me about the implications, long term implications, is that there are still people who were abusing patients at Anawaiki who are in the healthcare systems around the South, who are providing treatment for troubled children or people. and. We know that because Florida had made a list of abusers that were elsewhere and they weren't able to do anything about it, or they didn't do anything about it. There were, at the time, attempts, particularly in Florida, to review the way the state managed places like Anawaiki. I think that's one piece of evidence that it had at least the positive effect of getting the attention of the bureaucrats long enough where they could issue a report that maybe some people have paid attention to through the years. I think in terms of the American culture that Anna Wakey is one of the many things that woke the country up in the 70s and 80s to the kinds of manipulation and abuse that people and institutions were going through. That was a very gradual process and and now it's become something that we read about in the papers every day. It's not just institutions like Anawake, it's institutions like Hollywood. And we've become, because of little things like Anawakey became exposed and people became aware, then we are more aware of this kind of thing today.
5: For many Annawake survivors, coming to grips with what they went through has been a years-long process. Many of them have connected with each other over the years, through the internet and later a Facebook group which was created specifically for former patients. They will still have reunions from time to time. Many would attempt to track down their own records from the time they spent at Anawaiki. A few I spoke with were able to do so up to a point. Past that point, though, according to the facility, all records from Anawaiki were destroyed. Here's survivor Chris McKnight. He is currently working on a book about his experience at Anawaiki.
13: There was a window of opportunity for us to get our medical records. I found out this information, we have a chat group, an internet chat group that only Anawaiki students can be a part of. And we vet, you know, we know what questions to ask someone. You know, we've had group leaders that tried to get in and know, like, no. <laughs> A couple of the bad ones, too. You know, we know the questions to ask to, to tell if someone actually has been in Anawake. You know, what's the crest mean? What was your laundry number? What was the name of your first school group? It was, you know, we know the questions to ask. So, uh, anyway, it was found out that um, we could get our medical records. I want to say this is 2003, I think 2004, actually. Basically, you had to um, just sign a release and pay the copying cost. I think it was $7.00. Because I stayed twice, I had to pay 14. <laughs> I had the 1,400 pages of paperwork to copy. So I signed the release, sent it to him. Every day you were at Anna Wakey, there is something written about you. Most days, there are two entries. Some days, three, if you saw a doctor and maybe a nurse that day. And there be something by your group leader. My second stay reading my records, every day, there's probably three entries from people. Sometimes four. So they up the ante against the insurance company later on, uh, entries into your records. So a lot of us were able to get our records and then uh, we had a reunion in 2005 and right after the reunion, a bunch of people be- came to this reunion. They accommodated us at Douglasville. It was the first time I had been back to that campus since I had left. And it was, it was very healing for me but it was also really heavy, bizarre. It was emotionally wrenching, it just, I couldn't eat for days, but I, I needed to do that. It was painful, but I went back and I'm glad I did. So they got a whole run glut glutton of people asking, requesting the records, you know? I'd gotten my records right before the reunion. So because all these people on site requested their records, they had a whole mess of people requesting records and then shortly after that, within I wanna say two or three months, it became known that there was a fire at the warehouse where they were keeping our records. Had been an employee of Anna Wakey. I heard he was hired around 82, 83 and had actually worked for Anna Wakey. So if there was anybody that was still working there from prior that probably knew any shenanigans or something, he probably did. But he said that there was a fire in the warehouse and that no one could access the records anymore. They were gone. And he said that the warehouse was off-site, was close to the downtown Atlanta area, but wouldn't say where. No one knew an address. When you sent for your records, it, it was to old Anna Wakey Douglasville address. So I don't know if our records were actually off-site or not. It could have been fabricated. And because a whole bunch of people at once asked to see their records, my suspicion is that there really wasn't a fire And they just don't want to release any more records, not necessarily for liability reasons, maybe for liability reasons. Maybe they're afraid of kids that were there later on, that there's still a statute of limitations that they can't get from out under. I I don't know, but it seemed very, very suspicious. I highly doubt that there was the fire. And if there was, somebody said it on purpose. It's just too many weird coincidences about it all. Either they got rid of those records or they're somewhere. And I got a feeling that they're not very far from the Anawake campus. I really doubt that they would have hauled all that records. Thousands of kids there. If my records was one file box, you're talking about thousands of file boxes. You know, it's a lot of manpower. That's a lot of records to move.
2: Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com concertweek to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh,
10: and Two Door Cinema Club.
5: When I first began to look into the Anawake case, I had no idea how far this story went or where it would take me. Two years of trying to track down the many facets of its history has taken me on a journey all around the Southeast, speaking with dozens of survivors. The effects of Anawaiki are still seen today in the hundreds of former patients still dealing with the backlash from the abuse they endured. Many survivors that I have talked to have long-term health issues due to what they have been through, not to mention the years of therapy and counseling it takes to heal from something like that. Even with everything which the patients of Anawaiki went through, Many still say while they were abused the program did have some benefits
14: I learned I learned how to be I learned how not to be I learned everything I thought I was supposed to learn to be a man and to go out into the world and do my thing you know taught me a whole lot
9: there are positive ways that Anwaiki affected me I built a lot of inner strength because of the struggles and the hard work that we had to do and everything but there was also very negative effects that it had on me because I was robbed of my education and I was robbed of age 14 to 18 of being a teenager and living a normal life. You know, I felt like I was in jail for four years working. I mean, it was like a punishment. And the worst part is it didn't help me and I still suffer from depression to this day.
5: For other survivors, their history with Anna Wakey still comes up in their day-to-day life. Friends and family's reaction to this are not always the most understanding.
12: I would have to say having to explain to people, look, I went to this boys' school, There's a lot of sexual misconduct, There's a lot of forced laborers. You get to know someone you want to know. Oh, where'd you go to school? And blah, 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 blah. That's the hardest thing. i still got that weight on my shoulder. I'm still carrying it around. And I still have to expose it every once in a while.
10: It's still really hard to talk about because I felt like I've been punished for it several times by people that I trusted, a group, groups of my peers, it was kind of kind of rough. I know that I was a kid. I was a teenager. And uh, I know that I didn't do anything to deserve it. I know all those things. But I also think that for a place that was supposed to try to teach us to learn how to communicate and deal with people on a daily basis and, and the social aspect of it, it really messed a lot of us up. It made a lot of us angry. And it made a lot of us uh, feel like... In relationships, I know I've heard this from a lot of people that went there, is they struggle because everything's a confrontation. Everything is, we need to sit down and talk, and we need to you know figure this out, and we need to hit this head on. And in a lot of ways, I feel embarrassed to talk about it. It's hard to talk to my kids, my parents, my siblings about this. There's so many details and it's so complicated. It's so complicated that it's almost just easier just to not think about it. It helped my communication skills in a lot of ways. I've had to work really hard to undo damage that happened to me there. And that happened in the ways that they taught us, you know, to communicate. I mean, they had us teenagers policing each other, which never should happen, because teenagers, our brains weren't developed. We didn't know what we were doing. I have grandkids that are pushing on the age of, or when I went to Anawake and, I have three daughters. I would never want that to ever, ever happen to them. I just hope that something comes from this. I hope that as a group, those of us that are survivors that have had, oh my gosh, such a huge gamut, range of experiences. Some people claim it saved their lives, but it also messed up their life. That's kind of where I am, I think.
5: While Anawake's program may have had some benefits for its patients, the harm for many greatly outweighed the good.
12: I've had a lot of problems diagnosed with bipolar, PTSD, in and out of psych hospitals. I didn't deal with it for a long time. I pushed it down for a long time. And then when I started reading these reports coming up and what really happened there and feeling sorry for all of my friends I had to go through it, you know, it just really started to affect me. The fact that I really didn't have any guidance in my life except for Ann Wiki because my dad was not a guide for me. You know, once I got out of Wiki, he still wasn't there to guide me. So I just had to figure it out on myself. Started with a little job, became a bigger job, became a bigger job. But uh, it has caused me definite mental problems.
15: I think that some people have managed to cope and deal with their experience at Anawake more so than others. And I think that that's to be expected because we're all different human beings. We all deal with situations in a different manner. So I know for myself and some of the people that I know have had a very hard time dealing with all of the pain and the things that they've witnessed and experienced there. Um, It has absolutely changed my life. It changed my body. It changed the entire course of my life having been there. So I think that there is a tremendous amount of unrest. And I'm hoping that by doing this podcast that it will bring me some closure
4: some of the long lasting results from being an Anna Wakey is the aggressive confrontation. I feel like learning to confront people the way that I did has affected my relationships, not only with partners in life, but with my children. We always had to sit and talk out our feelings, and we always had, even if they were angry feelings, which a lot of people would say, Oh, that's a good thing. Well, it isn't when you are screaming and yelling, you know? It's good to talk out your feelings, but it isn't, to, it isn't okay to scream and yell. It isn't okay to scream and yell at children or to encourage children to scream and yell at each other. I do want to say that I'm, I'm grateful that this story is being told. I think a lot of people who went to Anna Wakey are grateful they may not agree with exactly how the story will be told, because everybody's story is different. Anna Wakey both saved and ruined my life. And that's a difficult thing to explain to people. I most likely would not have been a successful adult without the work ethic I gained from getting up early every day and working every day and knowing the importance of work and knowing the feeling of accomplishing my goals. I wouldn't be the person I am today, but I also wouldn't be broken. There are parts of me that are broken that are stuck in the woods of Anna Wakey that won't probably ever come out. And I have to remind myself sometimes that you're not in the woods anymore. You're out, you're an adult, you're grown, you're past all of that, but it rears its head and you have to reckon with it. And a lot of people will say, Either or. Either Anna Wakey saved their life or ruined their life. And for me, it's both.
5: For many victims of childhood abuse or people that were in the vicinity of it, survivor's guilt is a feeling that often haunts them for years.
7: I still live with survivor's guilt. I still deal with group members that, for example, staff member, Mr. Goldberg was taking a student down the road, what we called the Boulevard there at South Campus. We were coming in, taking showers, walking through the the breezeway, and we saw his car and the student leaving with them. And I got so frustrated. And so I, I was just angry because I told one of, I told uh, my group member, George, I said, George, look at such and such, he gets to ride home with Mr. Goldberg almost every night. And we're stuck here taking showers, getting eaten up by mosquitoes and dealing with all this crap. And I had animosity towards that student until later on in life, I realized what was happening to him. Now, obviously I wasn't there, I wasn't a fly on the wall, but if it looks like a zebra and it walks and talks and smells and looks and everything else, then it's probably a zebra. And after what had happened to me, I would say that that staff member was getting abused nightly. And I still live with that. I still have bad dreams of being in that passenger van, but running shotgun. That was a big thing for us in Aniwake. Crest members got to ride shotgun. And I still have dreams to this day of being in that van, riding shotgun, and group members being in the back crying, screaming and me turning around and seeing no one, you know, knowing there's no one driving and we're just going down a road real fast and me not be able to do anything. And I know now from therapy and group and and working with counselors and, and dealing with my own stuff and investigating on my own, that it's survivor's guilt. I don't know if that'll ever leave me.
5: Some former patients still have yet to try to unravel the damage done to them. Since my interviews with the survivors of Anawake, some have reached back out to me, saying they finally decided to go to therapy after all these years, after telling their story. Or finally decided to tell their parents what actually happened to them.
11: I don't think I realized until recently what an effect Anawake has had on my life. You know, from the trauma that that I went through there that I'm not able to, to this day, I mean, like I said, I'm doing fine, but I know that going through therapy would have been really helpful, but they they kind of took that away from me. So that's one thing. But, you know, my wife, when I told her about this podcast and everything, she was really happy about it because, you know, she's like, I think it could be. Be therapeutic for you to to actually kind of talk about this stuff. Because she's the only one that I've I've really told the whole thing to. And uh, that was just a couple of years ago. Um, Didn't even tell her that much until a couple of years ago.
5: Many survivors found solace in each other through the network of former patients who have connected through the Internet and reunions over the years. Some even managed to find love.
4: I'm very close to a lot of them as adults. And I think we all share that same mentality of we have to discuss this. We have to talk this out.
12: It's a page that we have on Facebook. You can go to that site anytime and there's something new. It's a place for jokes. It's a place for fun. It's a place for seriousness. It's a place for planning reunions and many reunions. And it's a place that everybody feels so safe that they can talk about any single thing that's going on with them that they can't talk with anybody else. You know, I've, I know I've had to reach out a couple times. What do I do? I'm in a situation. And I get tons and tons of feedback. It's a survivor site.
15: A little over 12 years ago, I finally decided to do some research. I guess at that point Google had just come out. And I decided to just Google Anna Wakey to see what popped up, if anything. And I was really surprised by some of the information that I read regarding the lawsuits, uh, regarding, you know, a lot of the things that I was not privy to in the initial lawsuit. There were a compilation of stories that different survivors told a brief synopsis of whatever it was that they wanted to say. And I read my husband's story and it touched me so much even then that it brought tears to my eyes. And once I joined this group, a situation came up and he ended up private messaging me. and. We just started talking and just had so much in common, either through our childhood experiences or our experiences there. We actually lived in different states. The initial part of our relationship was just through email and phone calls. And eventually, we lived in the same town. And then several years later, we got married. We've actually been together for about 12 years.
5: While the Anawaiki Treatment Center is no longer in operation, there are still many long-term stay treatment centers for youth all over the country. It is now more important than ever that parents know exactly where they choose to send their kids and what to look for if they do choose to go that route. Former Anawaiki counselor Carl Moore had some words of advice for both survivors of abuse such as himself and parents who may be thinking about sending their children to a program such as Anawake.
8: I would say to anybody who had been to Anawake that it's, uh... (laughs) I was thinking about this the other night. I know a lot of people think of themselves in terms of survivors. And it's funny, uh, Anawake had the name of the football team was the Warriors. So that's how I think of them, not as survivors, but as warriors. And that's a good thing, to uh, take something that would break you and take that thing and make it a part of rebuilding your life. People that matter to me were compassionate with me about this. That's the way I like to be with other people. It took me a long, long time to get to where I could do that. You have strengths that nobody will tell you about because of the things you've been through. You're not going to be easily fooled. You can go too far with that. (laughs) You have to learn it. But it's there. And it's a strength. There's the saying, pass it on or pass it back. Pass it back. Don't pass it on.
5: Is there anything else you would say to a parent who's thinking about sending one of their children to his treatment center?
8: Find out everything you can about it before you do it. And again, trust your instincts. I think that's it. I think there's nothing more uh, difficult for a parent than trying to deal with something like this with their child. I don't think you can be any more vulnerable than when you give someone your child. Looking at it from the point of being a parent, if someone is going to restrict your access to your kid, I think that's a no. You're going to have to work that out somehow. If there is some absolute declaration that, no, you're just not going to be able to communicate with your child. And there's always exceptions. If there's an exception to that, then there, there had better be a, some kind of advocate in place. Because, uh, you know, I can hear people saying, well, the parents are part of the problem. Well, then make them part of the solution. If not, you you know, maybe it's not the right fit. And trust your instincts. When when you think something's wrong, you got to look into it.
5: Thank you all for listening to this podcast. I hope that it has in some way helped the survivors of Anawaiki come to terms with their past, and help bring light to the sometimes hard-to-speak-of issue of child abuse. The reaction to this podcast has continued to surprise me as we worked on it. If you would like to see some of the correspondence and other pictures and stories about Anawaiki, you can check out the Camp Hell Anawaiki Podcast Discussion Group on Facebook. It has quickly become a place for survivors and listeners alike to share and discuss subjects from the podcast. If you have enjoyed listening or just want to tell us what you think, please consider leaving a review. We always can learn from any feedback you'd like to give. I would also like to give a special thanks to Rima Ilkay Ali, one of our producers who was especially helpful in finishing out this season. Thank you again, Rima. If you're looking for another good true crime podcast, I would suggest checking out Algorithm, a show one of my co-producers, Ben Kiebrick, is currently making. It deals with the tools used by authorities to detect serial killers. Until next time.
3: Camp Hell and Wakey was created and hosted by Josh Thane with producer Miranda Hawkins and executive producers Alex Williams and Matt Frederick. The soundtrack was written and performed by Josh Thane and Adrian Barry. Archival footage provided by WSB and CBS News. Find us on Instagram at Camp Hell Pod. That's CampHellPod. That's C A M P H E L L P O D. Educate yourself about the issue of child abuse and things that you should look for at the Darkness to Light website d2l.org. That's D the number 2 L dot org. Camp Hell and Awakey is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts.